Uh, we are back in John 5 this morning. In fact, we don't do this very often, but we're in the same passage we were in last week. And if you remember last week, we looked at verses 19 through 30, and we really didn't get into much of what the passage said, that is, what the passage itself taught. And that was because we were looking at the relationship that the passage described or inferred between God the Father and God the Son. We talked about the fact that the Father loved the Son, and so he delighted to honor the Son. We talked about the fact that the Son loved his Father, and so he loved to submit to his Father. And there was this complementary relationship in which both were blessed. One initiated and led, one submitted and followed or supported, but they were no less God, no less deity, no less blessed. And we talked about the fact that on earth, marriage was intended to be a living example or illustration of that complementary beneficial relationship. This morning we're in the same passage, and we're going to look at actually what the passage says this week. Isn't that nice? We're going to actually see what it says. Stick with me. Uh, This is a little, I don't want to say this is dry because uh, it's fascinating, but it's a little more, uh, and I hate to use the term academic, but it borders on that. But I think it'll be worth it. In starting out, before I read the passage again, let me read you a brief quote from Leon Morris. He's one of the key commentators on the book of John. He says this about this passage, verses 19 through 30. This is a passage of critical importance, the significance of which is not always realized. It perhaps lacks the striking expression like the bread of life or the I am sayings, but its central theme is crucial, and here he quotes Ryle, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship, as we find in this discourse. It is an important passage. Let's read that now, and we'll go from there. John John 5:19, Judy, right up through verse 30, John chapter 5, 19 through 30. And you remember again, Jesus has just healed a lame man, and now he's giving his defense, as it were, to the Jewish leaders. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel." For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. In order that all may honor the Son, you remember we said honor here means value or fix the price on. All may value or honor the Son even as they value the Father. He who does not honor or value the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. 
I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What I want to do here is key in on the two words that Jesus highlights, and they are the center of this passage. If we understand what he's saying about this, we'll get what he means. The two key words in this passage are life and judgment. Life and judgment. First, look at what he says about life. Verse 21, he says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The Son gives life, just like the Father. Verse 25, An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear his voice shall live. They'll get life from the Son. And then verse 26, He, that is the Father, gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus says he has life in himself. He doesn't need it to be given from someone else. So life, Jesus says at least three things about life. And then judgment, verse 22. Not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son. And then verse 27 He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So in this passage, it said the Father loves the Son and he honors the Son. And the key way this passage says the Father honors the Son is he gives him authority in these two key, we would say these are the ultimate areas of authority. He gives them the authority over life and death. When we see judgment here, it doesn't mean that he just weighs things out It means death. That's the implication in John. We'll see this more in a little bit. He gives Jesus the power over life and death, over life and judgment. The ultimate sense of this for us, we don't want to miss this. That is, for all of us, Jesus determines whether you and I live eternally or die eternally. This authority of judgment of life and death is given to the Son. So the Father's honoring the Son, and he does so by giving him the ultimate authority. He gives him the authority to condemn, and he gives him the authority to spare or to give life. That's the authority that we're talking about here. All of us, every one of us ever born, is going to face Jesus one day. And we'll do so in one of these two key capacities. We will face him as our judge, to be condemned, or we will face him as the one who gives eternal life. But it will be in one of these two capacities. There's no other options. And none of us can get out of the game, so to speak. We're all in this thing. And we're all going to the same place, that is to to Christ. And then we're either going to face him as the judge who condemns or the one who has life who gives us eternal life. It's in one of those two capacities that we'll meet him. Now, John doesn't leave us hanging, thankfully, about how do we get from this judgment to this life? What do we do? You guys know, of course, that his gospel was written to tell us how to get eternal life, right? We've been through this. But here in this passage, he tells us the same thing. What I want to say about this, uh, this gets into the academic side, so to speak. Um, You know, if I started talking about cubic inches in the car I drive, you guys might fall asleep. But if I look at a diagram of an engine and I see how the parts work because I'm visual, you know, I find it fascinating. And then maybe you'd catch a little of that fascination, you know, as I talked about the pistons and the cams. And 
Well, this morning, I'm going to mention briefly a literary structure. This is like talking about the car diagram, literary structure. This sounds like a really boring classroom word, but it's not. It's important, and it's specifically important in this passage this morning. Verse 24 is the middle of this passage. And it's not just about the middle if we count verses. It is literarily the middle of this passage. Verse 24, when we read this passage, God wants us to land on verse 24. And I can tell you that because of this. This passage, 19 through 30, is a chiasm. That is, literarily speaking, it makes point by point to the middle at verse 24, and then it digresses point by point, reversing its steps, so to speak. The second half is a mirror image of the first half, and that means God wants us to see what's at the middle. This is a common use in all of the scriptures and in John primarily, or maybe in key ways. So, verse 24 is the middle of this passage. And let me just, if I had a diagram, this would be simpler, but let me state it like this. Verse 19 says, The Son can do nothing unless it is something he sees the Father doing. 19. Verse 30, this is the beginning of the passage, verse 30, the end of the passage. Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's a mere image of the first verse. Verse 20, greater works than these will he show that you may marvel. Verse 28, the flip side, the mere image, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Verse 21, and each one of these verses, if we diagram it, we go point A, point B, point C, till we get to point D at the middle. Point C would be, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That's mirrored by verse 26. As the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So this leaves us with verse 24 right smack dab in the middle. And this is where God wants us to land. Because verse 24 in this passage about judgment, which equals death, And life, verse 24 is in the middle, and it's the answer to the question, okay, Jesus has the power to condemn or to give life, to judge me or to bring me in. What does it take? What do I do to pass from judgment to life? Last week we talked about this was a great memory verse and not without reason. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. See, the themes of judgment and life are met here in this verse. This answers the question. If I've got to face Jesus as a judge or as a life giver, how do I make sure it's as a life giver? Verse 24 tells us, We hear his word, and we believe him who sent him. We believe the Father, as it were. This is a little different. You know, if you look through most of the rest of the John of John's gospel, John tells us to believe in Jesus, right? You know, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Paul says in Acts 16. Or in other, other places in John, it says believe in Jesus. So this is a little different, and I'm digressing a bit, but just to make this clear, if you look further down in John 5, look down at verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. The Father bears witness to me. Verse 38, you don't believe him who sent me. And then verse 40, you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Because of the unity of the Father and the Son, when we believe in Jesus, the one who was sent, we're believing in the Father who sent him. 
when we believe in the Father who sent the Son, we're believing in the Son as well. So when Jesus says, you hear my word, the way you move out of judgment into life, you hear my word and you believe the one who sent me, if you believe the Father, you do believe the Son. They are inextricably intertwined. And again, if you remember earlier when we looked at this passage, when Jesus said, called God his Father, the Jews understood he was making himself equal with God. And we looked at this last week. The fact that the Father and the Son have different roles doesn't make either one of them any less God or any more God. They are equally God, equally, equally blessed. So <clears throat> Jesus says, and God tells us, and he highlights it as it were, he underlines it in verse 24, if you want to make sure you pass the one God the Father has given all authority to, the power and the authority to condemn forever, or the power to give eternal life, you come to the Son, you hear his words, and you believe. That's what we do. We're going to meet the Son as our judge, or we're going to meet him as our life giver. Let me give you an illustration of this. You can read this in various passages in Kings or Chronicles, but in long, uh, days long gone, you know, people would gather in cities if an approaching army came in, if a superior army came in. That's why they were walled cities, because those walls gave at least a temporary uh, defense against an invading army. But typically, this is what would happen. If the advancing army is superior to your own, you withdraw to the fortified city. The king would come to your city, and he would read a proclamation at your city gate. You can read this. Hezekiah went through this. And this is basically what the king said. I am going to conquer your city. And if I conquer your city, I'm going to kill you. Or I'm going to put you to forced slavery. What, you, what I'm going to do to you won't like, one way or another. If you'll submit to me, though, and if you'll open the gates and come out, I'll give you life. I'll spare your life. It'll be good. Each one of these cities, each time this happened, the city faced a king, and it was their response to the king that determined how they met him. See, if they resisted, if they said, we're going to hold out, eventually, of course, you think of the Romans in, in Masada even. They had what they thought was an impregnable fortress. It wasn't. It was just a matter of time in which those walls were breached. And this was the same theme here. The king knew if he had a superior army, it was just a matter of time. It was just a matter of time. He'd break down the defenses of the city, and he would kill the inhabitants who'd resisted him. But if they chose to submit, they opened the door, they let the king in, the king gave them life. It was the same king. And the king had the power to condemn to death or to spare and give life. And that's exactly the same theme here. And though we've talked about this before, let me remind you of Psalm 2. This is a perfect illustration of what Jesus is talking about here this morning in John 5, 19 through 30. Do you remember Psalm 2? It's a very graphic psalm. And it's man shaking his fist at God and saying, like a little kid, I won't be ruled. I won't obey. He says that obeying God is like wearing these shackles, these chains. And he says, I'm not doing it. And you remember God's response? God sitting in heaven. He looks down at these little ants, these little bits of matter on planet earth, you know, that he created with a word. And what's he do? He laughs. Why? Because this is ridiculous. His response besides laughter is he says, guys, 
I've already appointed my king. In fact, he's already on the hill. He's already on the throne. And this is how Psalm 2 concludes, the last three verses. Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Worship or bow down before the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling, with fear. This one God's installed has the power of life and death. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish. That's judgment. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's life. You see, it's exactly the same thing. The one king and the one person is the authority of life and death, of judgment and life. And you'll face him as one or the other, no exceptions. No exceptions. Not to bore you, but we see the same thing in Matthew 3. When John the Baptist, at the baptism of Jesus, when he's introducing Jesus as the Messiah, he says this, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I and I am not fit to remove his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's life. And fire. That's not tongues of fire on Pentecost. That's death. It's judgment. It's condemnation. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. That is, he's a farmer. He's brought in the grain. He's harvested the fields. He's on the threshing floor. He'll thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into his barn. That's life. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's death. That's judgment. It's the same thing, you see. It's Jesus doing both. God the Father gives him authority. In fact, all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus the Son. But in this passage, they bring it to a fine point by saying he's got the power of life and death. And you'll face him for one or the other, and there is no escape. Let me read to you the ultimate scene of judgment. This is out of Revelation 20. This is another graphic and stark picture, and it should be terrifying. It should be frightening. You remember Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When I get the faintest clue of how big and bad, not evil, but how big and powerful God is, I tremble like Psalm 2. And I should see that same kind of trembling in Revelation 20. Verses 11 through 15, John, the apostle, seeing this heavenly vision, and this is what he sees, a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, no place was found for them. I saw the dead. These aren't just physically dead. These are spiritually dead. That is, they're separate from Christ. I saw the dead, the great and the small. It doesn't matter on earth how important they were or how insignificant they were. They're standing before this great white throne. And books were opened. These are the books that record the deeds of their life. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life, everyone who's saved, their names are in a book of life. It's recorded. There's no doubt about it. The book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. This goes right back to Jesus' statement in verse 25. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Um, Sorry, wrong verse. 
Anyway, about judgment, the resurrection, verse 29, uh, who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, it's not a question of if their name's here. The book of life is open to show that their name is not there. And the book of the deeds of their life are there to determine the degree of their punishment in hell, not anything else, not life or some version of it. So for these folks who in their lifetime on earth didn't meet Jesus as life giver, this is when they meet him face to face, eye to eye as judge. And there's only one sentence as far as their final destiny. The only question is the degree of punishment. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus says that even in hell, there are degrees of punishment. Some will receive fewer stripes, it says, than others. So if you say everyone's in hell, it makes no difference, that's not true. Those who do more evil will receive more punishment in hell than those who do less evil. Just as those in heaven will have degrees of reward also. And by the way, I hope this is clear. There, you and I, anyone who's trusted Christ, we're spectators at this throne and this judgment. We're not there. We're not there. We are at another judgment. And it's painful, potentially, but it's not, it's not whether we go to heaven or hell. It's how much reward God can give us. And it talks about this, the Bema seat, B-E-M-A, the Greek term Bema or Bema seat of Christ. And this is where all those who are saved stand before the Lord and he says, okay, let's see how you did. What did you do for me? Did you do what I told you? See, from the father's perspective, he wants to bless all his kids. That's why he lets us participate in what he does on the earth. This is a blessing, it's not a curse. So that at the end of the work day, so to speak, our dad, who's also our boss, says, Junior, did you do what I told you? Let's see. And it's because, it's not because he wants to punishment or make us lose, but it's because he wants to reward us. And 1 Corinthians 3, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5 all talk about this judgment. This is the believer's judgment, totally different from what we're talking about today. Do not confuse the two. When believers are judged, it has nothing to do with going to heaven or hell. It's the quality of our work, Paul says. Did we build, that is, did we work in our lives in a way that reflected wood, hay, and stubble? That is, our lives, were, were, we built them like the little piggies who build the houses that fall down. God wants us to build with bricks like the wise pig, right? Or Paul says with gems and precious stones, things that come through fire untouched. See, those are the things we do in life for Christ. And so that judgment, the Bema seat of Christ, has nothing to do with the great white throne judgment. This judgment is death and only death. The only question is the degree of punishment for the folks that are there. This should be terrifying. You know, I am so thankful, guys. If you, every day I remember God saved me, that I'm not going to hell. There's no words. And I didn't do anything. You know, I was stupid enough to let God say, hey, Junior, uh, come my way. Okay. You know, I didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to get it. But if life seems a little hard for you, read Revelation 20 and then reconsider who you belong to, what your future is, where you're headed, and reorient. That's an example. That's the ultimate judgment. 
It's Revelation 20. It's not a pretty scene. Look at John 11 briefly if you want to. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I do want to highlight this as an example in John's Gospel of Jesus as the life giver. See, Revelation 20 is the ultimate scene of Jesus the judge. And you know, the one who died for the sins of the world, I think it's fair that he judged the sins of the world, don't you? I think that's appropriate. I think that's appropriate. But he's also the one who gives life, and he delights to give life. And remember that it's at Jesus' cost that anyone goes to heaven. You know, when people talk about God as judgmental, and Isaiah says of judgment that judgment is God's strange work. It is a, an aspect of his character that he does very well, exceedingly well, but which he is not typified by. It's not what he delights in. In fact, if you read Ezekiel in two or three places, God says quite clearly, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would forsake their ways and repent and live. That's God's desire towards the world. Well, in John 11, we've got a picture, a great example in the same gospel of Jesus speaking words of life. And if you remember John 11, it's the story about Lazarus. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, this trio, these siblings, are good friends of Jesus. And Lazarus has become sick. And so Mary and Martha send a messenger to Jesus someplace in the north. And they say, Master, the one you love is sick. Would you come down and take care of him and heal him? He's not just a little sick. He's very sick. And Jesus, you know what? He doesn't hurry down. In fact, he delays. Seems kind of cruel at the time. He delays. And he eventually kind of meanders down towards his good buds there in Bethany down near Jerusalem. And he shows up and Martha says at verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's kind of, she's chiding him, isn't she? If you'd come when we told you, he'd be alive today. Jesus says to her, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know at that future day, at that final calling out, Lord, I know he'll rise then. And Jesus' famous words in John eleven twenty five, says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Sounds a little bit like John 5, 24, doesn't it? He goes to the tomb, and in this great scene, verse 43 and 44, it says, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And dead Lazarus hears the words of Jesus and the dead passes out of judgment into life. He who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See at verse 28 and verses 29 and hours coming, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There's kind of a joke one commentator says, if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, everyone would have come out of the tombs. See, from this verse that he's going to speak one day, and at his voice, everyone's coming out of the tombs. And see, unfortunately, some are coming out at Revelation 20. But some, like Lazarus, Jesus' friends, they're coming out from death to life. That's the thought here. That's the thought here. 
this John 11, this passage is just a great reminder that Jesus is speaking. It's a living illustration of what he said in 28 and 29. There's a resurrection. For some, it's a resurrection from death to death. They, they're raised from the dead only to be sentenced to eternal death, the lake of fire. But for others, Jesus' voice, it's the call from death to life. You know, for all of us, Lazarus physically, he was dead. They could see that. But you know, all of us, until we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead, without God, without hope. Spiritually today, Christ is still calling out, every time the gospel is preached, to the spiritually dead. And he's saying, believe in me and join Lazarus and walk out of the place of death. Or join those folks in Psalm 2. Worship the Son. Kiss the Son. Open the gate. Say yes to the offer to life. Because if you refuse, there's only one role Jesus has left to play, and that's of, as judge, as the one who gives the sentence of death, not life. The question obviously becomes, since we're going to see Jesus, in which role do we see him? You're going to hear his voice. Will you hear him as your judge? Or will you hear him as your savior? If you've trusted Christ, and and make no bones about this, make no doubt, if you have trusted Christ, and, and by that I mean this, if I say to you, if you died today, where are you going? Most of us say, heaven, I hope. If I say, why is God going to let you in? And you say, because Jesus died for my sins, because I know God has saved me through Christ, something like that, I can tell you, based on the authority of the scripture, you're going, you're there, don't worry about it, no fear. In fact, God wants us to know, verse 24, guys, you've passed out of death. There's no death left for you. It's not even possible. It's not a possibility, much less a likelihood. You've passed out of death. You're in the realm of life. In fact, you remember what Paul says in Ephesians 1? He says that every Christian is seated now with Christ in heaven. Think about that one. You're as good as there. You're as good as there. Anyone who's trusted Christ. John 10, a passage we'll look at later. Jesus says it's like this. You're in my hand. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. You're in his hand. I think that's a pretty safe place. And you know what he says then? And my hand's in the Father's hand. You know what? I couldn't get out of there if I wanted to. And I don't. But not only that, nothing else could get me out of Jesus' hands and the Father's hand. So if you've trusted in Christ, if to the question, how can I get to heaven, your answer is Christ, Jesus, you're going. You know, the thing for us to do, it's to say, thank God you saved me. Lord, thanks for saving a wretch like me. I sin every day, and I'll bet you do too. And every day, our sin, or when God forgives us, whatever, every day, every blessing I receive, every good thing I enjoy, every time I go to God and say, Lord, I blew it again, thanks for forgiving me, every day is an opportunity to remember I'm saved from Revelation 20. I'm not there. I'm safe with my dad. I'm safe with Jesus, the life giver. If you're not sure, by all means, make sure, You're going to see Jesus, all of us, eye to eye, face to face, no exceptions. If you don't absolutely know, 
He's your Savior now that you've heard his word like Lazarus and you've walked out of death into life by trusting him. Do it this morning. Let me encourage you by all accounts. Don't leave today unless you're sure of that. Hear his voice and believe. That's all we do. It's as if God says, Mike, hold out your hands. I'm going to give you eternal life. All I do is let him pour it in. I don't do anything. There's no work whatsoever involved in this. In fact, later, I'm giving away all my good stuff this morning. But you know, later in John 6, in John 6, when the Jews are following Jesus around because he fed them in John 5, they're, see, they're working hard. They're working up a sweat walking around the Sea of Galilee. What are they doing it for? To get their next free meal. Their McDonald's Happy Meal. See, they're working hard, jogging, running to catch up with Jesus on the other side of the lake. And what's he say to them? Don't work for food that perishes. Work for the food that lasts forever, that endures to eternal life. And they say, okay, Lord, tell us the work. And what's he say? Believe in the one he sent. Believe. Believe isn't work. It's receiving or it's trusting. And that's all God's asking us to do. Do you want, want to meet Jesus as judge? You just hang out with those rebels in Psalm 2 and you shake your fists at them till the day you die. And you will. In fact, it doesn't even have to be that dramatic. A lot of us, we have religious piety. We think pretty highly of ourselves. We don't need a Savior. Thank you, Lord, very much. You didn't need to die for me. I'm doing very well on my own. I'll take my chances. It doesn't have to be shaking our fist. We can quietly, stubbornly refuse God's invitation to life to the day we die. He'll honor that refusal, and we'll meet him as judge. But it's not what he wants. He delights in life. We're going to meet Jesus as judge or as life giver. Let's pray. Lord, I am just so thankful that we are called to your table and that, Lord, as you told your disciples the last meal you ate with them, that there was going to be this feast in heaven and and that you weren't eating again, you weren't drinking again, Lord, until that day when you saw them post-resurrection at your table in heaven and you'd be drinking and eating with them again at this great celebration. The battle's all won. Heaven and earth decided. You the victor. And we get to be there with you at your side. Lord, every day is an opportunity to say thank you for saving us. Lord, the truth is all of us deserve judgment based on our own merit. There's nothing but you for but you, for you to do other than righteously judge us. Thanks that you didn't just honor your justice, but you honored your mercy in coming yourself to earth to die for our sins. God, this truth that those who are saved really have passed out of death into life, verse 24, that like Lazarus, we've come out of the place of the dead, and we're into the land of the living. Lord, this ought to liberate our hearts each and every day to say thank you and to live for you and to rejoice with you. Help us to live, Lord, as those who know you, who are seated with you, even now in heaven, so sure is our salvation that you say we're as good as there now. Lord, I pray that the folks we rub shoulders with, Lord, we are unclean people in the midst of unclean people. And Lord, there's people all around us who are with Lazarus still in the place of the dead. And we ask that you'd use us 
that you'd help us share the gospel, that your spirit would be bringing others to life as well. Thanks that you delight, Lord, in giving life. Lord, we bless you for your goodness. Thanks for your salvation. And Father, we, we mean to honor your Son as you do. We mean to value your Son, our Savior, as you mean us to. In Jesus' name, amen.